The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Verses 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the word of God. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning we have that we can gather together and look to your word. We ask, Lord, that you will open our hearts and minds to your word as we understand in greater measure what it means to be a believer, what it means to be part of your body, particularly here at Orchard. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, but as you are seated, let me begin by asking you a question. The question is, why are you here today? There's so many other things that you could be doing on this day, but you all chose to come here for some reason. Now, we all do different things in life. We have different pleasures of life. We pursue life in different ways. Uh, In the recent few weeks or so, uh, my wife and I and kids, we've done a number of things. One, over Christmas, we went down to the uh, symphony orchestra, the Colorado Symphony Orchestra, and saw Handel's Messiah. And while we were there, we were there for that purpose, for that reason. And we enjoyed Handel's Messiah, and in planning to go, even... I read through Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 to kind of get that biblical background to it. Then I read through the libretto of the Messiah to hear those words so that I could more fully enjoy being at the symphony. And then a few weeks later, we went down to the stock show and the rodeo. And while we were there at the rodeo, we went for the purpose of watching the rodeo, for watching the bull riders and the calf riders and and, uh, the uh, mutton busting and then the gals that rode the horses around the barrels. We went there for the purpose of being there for that, and even for the stock show. Don't think less of me, but I do love the smell of cows. I love the smell of the stock show. There's something about that, and we stood there for an hour or more watching the shows as these uh, kids from around the country paraded their calves in front of us getting judged. And then we've done other things that uh, make life enjoyable. We've been to uh, sporting events. When you do these things, you go there to do that. You go there for that reason. So when we're at the stock show, I wasn't sitting there wondering about Handel's Messiah. And while I was at the Messiah, I wasn't sitting there wondering about the cacophony of noise that comes out of Washington. I was there for that one reason, for that purpose. And when we come to Orchard, to church on Sunday morning, we ask ourselves the question, why are you here? What are we here for? What are we doing here? And if we don't come with a mind that's fully devoted and attentive to what we are doing here as believers, then we're missing the whole purpose of it. We're missing what God plans for us while we're here. And I know how easy it is for all of us to sit back there right now. Some of you I know right now are thinking about the stock show now because I've mentioned it. You're thinking about other things. You're worrying about what the Broncos will be next season because they've so troubled themselves in the recent months. So my question is, why are we here? Paul's admonition for you today is to ask that question and to understand in greater measure what it is we're doing here as this body of believers. And as we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
There's a number of things that Paul talks about. Now, in the outline you have, let me just read the four questions that I have that sort of frame this passage. First, Paul uh, will ask the question, what foundation am I building on? Paul talks about us building on this foundation, which is Jesus Christ. We have to ask ourselves the question, what foundation am I building on? Secondly, what material am I building with? Third, what kind of building am I building? And fourth, what can I do to build wisely? Those are the questions we want to ask today. Those are the questions we want to look at today. So let's begin again in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. With that verse, we transition now between this idea that Lars talked about last week, that we are God's field. Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gives the increase. And Lars spoke about that, and he used that metaphor, that illustration, to explain that as believers, as the church, we're planted and we grow because of the labors of others. But we don't choose whether we're Paul or whether Apollos, but God gives the increase. And so that's a metaphor he lays out in prior passages, in prior verses, and Lars talked about that last week. Here now, he says, we are God's building. And so now we trans, uh, uh, transfer from this imagery of agriculture to one of architecture. And of course, Paul uses many different ways, metaphors of describing what it means to be a church, what it means to be a believer. And he does so because each one of these metaphors, these pictures, can in some way illustrate some great truth, but at least something else out. And so he picks different metaphors. So as the field, we see the dynamic of its growth and that God gives the increase. And we don't account for that. It happens because God takes care of us. Now, the building gives a different metaphor. It's not living and dynamic in the same way as a field might be, but it shows us something else. And the point that Paul makes is here that we are building on a foundation. Now, in verse 10, Paul continues, According to the grace God has given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. He speaks here now of himself as a skilled master builder. The word used here, sophos architecton, is sophos, sophia, wisdom, a wise architect, architecton. So he is a wise architect, a master builder. And Paul describes himself now simply not as an architect, as the one who draws at the blueprints, but the architect in the biblical sense, in the Greek sense, actually, in the broader Greek world, the architect was equivalent not simply to the one who draws up the blueprints, but to the general contractor, the one who was on site, encouraging, managing, responsible for the budget, responsible for the workers and the subcontractors. And in the Greek world, they had many spectacular buildings. Now, when we read this, and Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in about the year uh, 57, and he writes during those years, and of course by then the Greek world had been taken over by the Romans, but architecture was very widely spread throughout the ancient world, beautiful large buildings, the public buildings in particular. And so if a Corinthian person had been to Rome, they may have seen the great buildings of Rome. If they had been, even in Corinth, there was a great temple of Apollo there, and it had 38 pillars, seven of which stand today. Uh, and so there is an endurance to it. Large, beautiful buildings. So Paul uses this imagery of what we see there. You can think also in the Jewish world of Herod's temple. For those believers that Paul writes to who had been Jews, they knew what the temple was. They knew the magnificence of the temple that Herod had built. And we've talked about that in the past. So they had this imagery of what a great building was. But they also knew what a bad building was. 
because most of them lived in very shoddy construction. They lived in small tenements built of wood, built of straw for a roof, and, and those were susceptible to fire. And that's why Paul uses this imagery now. So he speaks now of each of us as a fellow worker. We are God's fellow workers, which means we are all participants in this grand program that God has for us in building the temple of God. We'll see what that means in greater detail. But as a fellow worker, think about what an ancient building may require. There would be the stonemasons. There were those out at the quarry who would quarry these very large bricks. They would cut them to size, leaving only small fragments on its corners and edges so that when a brick of stone of the weighed several tons was moved, if it were damaged in some way, it wouldn't damage the part of the stone they needed. So they were in large measure quarried to size at the quarry and then brought with just some of the edges that were then chipped off in the last moments as it was placed in the building. And they had, of course, great technology with cranes that could lift up these large stones and place them. Well, they did. Why are you laughing at that? <coughs> they, they built these magnificent buildings. And so there are those, the stone workers. But when the stones were brought to the location, they would then have to put them in place. So they had masons. And then when the buildings were uh, built, they would have others come in who were the artisans who... Uh, finished the buildings in many ways. And so all of these buildings had people who were part of the workers. They, were the, they had jobs on site. And many in the ancient world knew what that meant. They were urban people. They lived in large cities. And so they know what great buildings look like, and they knew what bad buildings look like. And so Paul says we're fellow workers. We're God's building. And he speaks again, according to the grace God has given to me, God gave grace to Paul to be a skilled master builder, Paul says, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. So Paul describes the foundation that he lays. And as he says here, it is Jesus Christ himself. He lays a foundation. He's now, as a church builder, laying a foundation which becomes a church. And this doesn't mean that Paul is the founder of Christianity. He is simply doing God's work in building the church. But Paul knows, as we saw in prior weeks that there are others who come along with responsibilities to build on that foundation. And so he talks about others who are coming to build on it. And that's us. Every one of you today are part of the work crew of building what is God's great program. Paul has laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, and by that he means, quite simply, the work that Christ did. Not simply his wonderful teaching, but more particularly, Christ as the Messiah who comes as the Redeemer of the world who himself died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. So if you understand the gospel in its specific sense and even broadly as you think about it theologically from the Old through the Old Testament to the New Testament, we understand in greater measure all that it means to speak about the work that Christ did. Paul is saying that that foundation is our foundation. Build only on that. And so our job today, as believers at Orchard, as believers in the broader church at large, is to be a good builder that builds on that foundation. We have roles, we have responsibilities, we have duties. Now think about a foundation. We want to build on the foundation which is Christ. And we all know of foundations that have failed. Do you know what the Millennium Tower is in San Francisco? The Millennium Tower in San Francisco is a big, beautiful skyscraper, it's got apartments and, I think, office space in it as well. And very wealthy people move in there with these multi-million dollar apartments. However, 
before its tenants could move in, they found out the Millennium Tower, which stood so tall, is now sinking. So in San Francisco, it's now sunk about 18 inches down and is now leaning about 14 inches to the side. Now, maybe the architects would say, that's, that's not so much. We can deal with that. I know they're trying to justify this, try and fix this. But would you spend millions of dollars for an apartment or a building that's sinking? I mean, think about that. The Millennium Tower is sinking now. Why? Because its foundations didn't get down to the bedrock. Its foundations didn't reach down to where it needed to be. And so it's sinking in that regard. Foundations matter. In China, and most of us have phones in our pockets built in China and TVs on our walls that were built in China. But when Chinese build for themselves, they don't often do such a good job. There's an apartment complex a few years ago in China, a 13-story apartment building that before the tenants could move in, the whole thing just tipped over and fell. And only one person was killed because nobody moved in. But think about moving into a building whose foundations didn't reach down to the bedrock and that would fall over like that. Now, what makes for a bad foundation? First, water can erode it. And so if you have water eroding around the base of the foundation, it can change that structure. And so there's a number of reasons that foundations fail. One might be the water that's leaking around it. And so that's why we have drain spouts. Another reason might be that the soil was not properly prepared. And we have bad soil in different areas of Colorado, betonite and other things that can contract and cause the foundation to, to move and to crack itself. If we don't have well-prepared soil, it can fail. You might also have a foundation that's just poorly constructed itself, made of inferior concrete without the proper uh, rebar in it, these sort of things, so the foundation itself breaks. What Paul is telling us here about Christ is that he is a foundation that cannot be eroded by anything that comes around it. The water that leaks down from the philosophers of the world that tries to undermine it never will. It will stay secure. It will always be there. The ground has been well prepared. And the foundation itself built in Christ is not going to crack. It's not going to crumble. And so Paul's message is quite simply that we think about what it means to be a believer and that we are building not only this congregation at Orchard, not only the church at large, but even our own personal lives, building it on the foundation that is Christ. And if we do that, we'll find something secure in our life. And the one thing we all need is something secure in our life. And so Paul uses this imagery to speak about this. So we have this image of the foundation that is being laid. The picture of Christ, not only in his death, not only Good Friday and all that it accomplished, but also in Easter, in the resurrection, that is our foundation. So who are the builders? Well, he speaks of them in different ways here. He says, let each one take care. Someone else is building. He speaks of it in these other ways. Paul laid the foundation by preaching what Christ is, what he did. And then we are, each one of us, building on that. But Paul gives a warning. He says, let each one take care how he builds on it. All right, so now we've got a foundation that's secure. And if we can just stipulate that in Christ we have a, sound, a foundation which is not movable, that's not shakable, that's not crumbling, that can't be imperiled from outside forces, we have that foundation. Now we're building on it. Well, then what are we going to do? Well, you can take the most spectacular, wonderful foundation and build on it a wooden shack with walls of, uh, of straw. Think about the huts from Gilligan's Island, perhaps. Some people, some churches build structures 
No more uh, of strength than that. And so all of us need to ask ourselves, why are we here? What are we doing? And how are we building? And so Paul is saying there's some who build very inferior structures. Be careful how you build. And Paul in the past is, uh, has talked about, in prior verses, talked about himself and, and Apollos and Peter, Cephas, and in these ways said that there's others out there who are teaching, but we are the ones building on it, and we have to build wisely. So think about what you're building and why. Now, Paul is discussing this as not making accusations against paganism. He's not speaking against the pagan world with their multiplicity of gods in both the Greek and the Roman world. And you know the gods we're talking about, the Temple of Apollos there in uh, 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 Corinth itself. He's not talking about them. He's talking about those teachers who claim to be building on Christ but are themselves building pretty shoddy structures. Now, we can describe some of those. And if I started at the bad side of things, the bad end of it, there is a theology out there, prosperity theology, we've touched on in many ways in the past, but I recently saw another expose of this character, Robert Tilton. Remember this guy who was exposed to being a fraud in many ways? Well, he's still out there. He's still out there raising money, promising that if you send him $1,000, God will send you 10000 back. And this whole prosperity theology that says that the, the, the core of the Christian life and world is simply one of reaping and sowing. And if you sow your money in my ministry, that you'll reap many fold back. There is that out there. And people begin to think that that's all Christianity is about. That if we just do these things, that God will then reap benefits back to us. And really it becomes nothing more than a selfish way of thinking about our life and building our life. And so we have these teachers out there who claim to be building on Christ, who are building works that in the final judgment will be destroyed, that will have no value. And that's what Paul's point is going to be. We have other teachers out there, and Paul in, in this passage has spoken of himself. And you remember back from chapter 1, Paul and Apollos and, and Cephas or Peter and other teachers. He says, you have all these teachers. Learn from them. And so now we as a body here have to learn to be discerning and think about what really matters. Who's teaching wisely? We can think of good Bible teachers that are available on the radio or on TV. There's John MacArthur, there's Chuck Swindoll, there's John Piper, there's R.C. Sproul and others. And you may prefer one or the other depending on your style of learning or your particular brand of theology in certain areas. But what Paul is saying here is each one of these good teachers are teaching something that we can learn from. And listen to them, learn from them what you can, and grow. So Paul is saying there's many out there who are teaching wisely, many teaching poorly. But for all of us, we have to be careful how we build. And that requires us to be looking closely at the foundation itself. Are we really building a life? Are we really building a church, a ministry, are we really becoming a part of God's great work in a way worthy of the foundation itself? If we have, again, this magnificent foundation and we're building structures on it with no merit, then we're doing something wrong. Now, part of what he speaks about when he talks about each of us building upon it is to say that each one of us have an assignment in this building project. In Ephesians 4.11, he describes this further. He says, and he gave some of the apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave these people, he says, 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. The reason there are teachers, Paul, Apollos, Peter, and now what we have today, the reason there are teachers is so that each person can be equipped to be a part of the ministry. It's not simply that we sit and listen and absorb and say, oh, that was a good message. Oh, I got a good I thought from that. It's more that we know that we are fellow laborers, that we are working in the field together, all contributing, that we are working on the construction site, each contributing to building up what is the body of Christ. And so Paul's message is that we think more along those lines, that we each have responsibility in a task. Metaphorically, some are masons, some are carpenters, some are artisans with other skills. Whatever your place is, your role is, Paul is saying you should be a part of that. So we ask the first question, what foundation am I building on? The foundation must always be Christ. Secondly, what material am I building with? In verse 12, Paul continues, Now if anyone builds in the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let each one's work become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it, or the day, will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So Paul now uses these six building materials, uh, uh, gold, silver, precious stones. Precious stones perhaps referring to jewels as might be part of the temple, perhaps precious stones being the valuable stones used, hewn out, the marble hewn out of the, the hillside and brought to the construction site. These may be what he's talking about, but these are things that are imperishable by fire. They don't burn up. They're inflammable versus those that are flammable, the wood, the hay, and the straw. Those things, he says, don't last. So there's something that has worth and durability, and there's other building materials that don't. So the Corinthians had this. Now, we can think of a well-built house, a well-crafted car. Some years ago, I was driving a 64 Chevelle Malibu, just a wonderful vehicle. And if you know vehicles, you know how beautiful that car would have been. Just a great-looking car. But the engine blew up as I was traveling from the East Coast in Zanesville, Ohio. And I had no money to repair it, so we had to leave it there and buy a new car. And I bought a car called a Chrysler Volare. Remember the Volare? Ooh, what a car. It was a car sold by a man named Ricardo Montalban, who spoke of it with its Corinthian leather which is so appropriate because Corinthian leather, you know, is not leather, it's just vinyl. It's like a high-grade plastic of some sort. And even when Montalban went on the David Letterman show, Letterman asked him, he says, what is Corinthian leather? And Montalban says, this doesn't mean anything. Chrysler just made up the idea of Corinthian leather trying to impress you. But it was of no value. It was built with vinyl and, and cheap construction. The Volari was no kind of car at all. And you think about what really matters. What are you building with? If you don't use good materials, if you're a cook or a baker, and you put in bad ingredients, you're going to get a bad product. Deanne makes chili. She's made chili for many years. And for a period of time, and I'm telling this story because it's not her fault, but for a period of time, her chili became less and less tasty. Less, it was not, and at some point, we found it was not any good anymore. You know why? Because the chili powder we had been using has just gone stale. And everything was right until she put the chili powder in it, and that ruined the whole thing. So if you don't use fresh, quality ingredients, you're going to get a bad product at the end. And now she's back to making great chili again. 
What you use matters. Paul is saying what you use really does matter. So we have this, and we have to evaluate. Now, he speaks here of this judgment by fire. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, Paul speaks about a judgment. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking of an end-time judgment that will come in which fire will be the judge of those who are here. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. If you were living in the first century as a Jew, you would know Malachi 3 well. And I'll just reference that for you now. But in Malachi 3, it speaks there also of an end-time judgment that comes by fire. And then in verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives by this fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What Paul is saying here is there's a judgment coming, a judgment day in which all of us will stand in front of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, in which the works that we've done, the way we've lived, the structure we've built will be judged. And if it was of a quality that endures, gold, silver, precious stones, of that quality, it will endure. Wood, hay, and straw, it'll be burned up. Now he says and makes a point that the believer himself or herself won't be burned up. They will survive, but they will escape by the skin of their teeth, is the imagery he gives here. He says, you'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. You'll make it. It doesn't mean you're going to be cast out, miss out on, on God's promise of heaven, but you'll miss it. Miss the joy and the blessings of having built with something that lasts. And so there will be a reward for those that build with stuff that matters, with uh, quality products. But what is that? What is the reward that we get? The reward we get is God's commendation. And in chapter 4, we'll see next week, there is the, uh, the promise that when you do well, God will say to you, well done, my good servant. Now, how do we build with works that matter? If you're asking yourself this morning, what can I do that will have the quality of gold and silver and precious stones? Do I have to be the lead minister of a large international ministry? Do I have to be somebody like Swindoll that's published hundreds of books that's heard worldwide? Is that what gold is and everybody else is something like silver or something less than that? And that's exactly not what Paul is saying. In fact, if you look at a number of other places that uh, Jesus teaches, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, who, say to you he will by no means lose his reward. If all you can do is give a cup of cold water to one in need, Jesus says, that will give you that gold reward. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 40, there's a couple of parables there. One, the parable of the talents. Uh, if you do these things, that there's a great reward. There's also the parable or the story that Jesus speaks about the sheep and the goats. And, and he says, those who will be blessed are those who, who fed the poor, who took care of the needy. And, and they say, well, when did we do that? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When you took care of those in need, when you simply ministered with, to others, when you simply found somebody in need, brought them a meal, took care of them in their time of need, that is the kind of mutual ministry that Paul is talking about, that Jesus is talking about. It's simply taking care of one another, 
that's where we can build our gold. So you don't have to be the most oratorically skilled preacher in the country. All you have to be is one who loves and takes care of other members of the body. And then you get that reward. Then you get that well done, my good and faithful servant, at the end. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, for what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What is our hope, he says? What is our reward? Is it not you, Thessalonians? For you are our glory and joy. All Paul wanted to do was to build into the lives of real people. And he says, if, if my teaching, if my ministry, and if your love for one another begins to grow, that is my reward, Paul said, that you grow, that you love one another. Nothing more is needed than that. But look at verse 16. We see our third question. What kind of building am I building? And this becomes so critical. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, when he says here, do you not know? In Corinthians, ten times Paul asks that question. Do you not know? And it's a way of sort of chastising them. A way of saying, you do know. I've told you this before. You do know this already. A few years ago, R.C. Spruill died a couple years ago. And in his last year, when he was on oxygen, he was still out teaching. He was still doing conferences. And there's a famous video that some of you may know when Spruill is on a conference stage with six other great pastors and theologians and a crowd of a couple thousand out there asking questions. And a question comes up that Spruill, maybe at the end of life, he decided that we got to, people have to start thinking more seriously about what it means to be a believer. All right, let's say it that way. Uh, remember, there's no stupid questions, only stupid people who ask questions. <laughs> and so this question came. And Spruill began answering it. And as he answered, he went on for about a minute and a half. And then finally, he became so frustrated with the question itself, he looked at the people and said, what is wrong with you people? And they started laughing. He said, no, I'm serious. What's wrong with you? And in that moment, people were wondering, my goodness, maybe he's right. Maybe we're not taking this faith, this teaching seriously enough. Maybe we need to understand in greater measure what it means to be built up as a church, as a body of believers. And Sproul challenged him. In his own mind, I'm sure he's thinking, I don't have much time left. I said everything I'm going to say. He knew he wasn't going to be around much longer, and he died within a few months of this. And he's saying, we better start thinking hard. What's wrong with us? If we come to church and we're not thinking about what God has for us here, but something else, what's wrong with us? So he uses this imagery of a building being built, and then in verse 16 it transitions not into simply any building, but into a temple. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? What we're building here is not any building. We're building God's temple. You are God's temple. What's a temple? A temple is a place where heaven, where God intersects with mankind. It's a place where God is. And now it's no longer found in the tabernacle of the Old Testament or the temple in Jerusalem, which will be destroyed in a few coming decades from when Peter writes in the year 70. <coughs> it's found in you. It's found in us. 
That's the message that he's giving. When we think about this, this is absolutely the most profound teaching I can, I can bring to you this morning, is that we are a temple. And there is this understanding now in more recent years from a number of people writing, including one theologian, Greg Beale, and others, that we might call temple theology. And it is to say that all of the scriptures are about building God's temple. The Garden of Eden is a picture of God's temple. It's a picture of the place where God would be with his people. And it was corrupted by sin. Then God said, much later, we'll build a tabernacle. And that's where, that will be the place of my presence, the glory of my presence in the tabernacle. And some years later, under Solomon, the first temple will be built. That'll be the place of God's glory, dwelling in that temple. And then when that was destroyed by the Babylonians, later they'd rebuild. And then Herod would build upon that. And that temple, perhaps, might be the place of God's glory. Paul says, now you, the community as a whole, are the temple of God because we are the place where God's glory dwells in this congregation, in our midst. He's speaking of us in this way. Let me just read a couple of other passages. 1 Peter chapter 2. And verses 1 to 8, where Peter, remember, we have those Corinthians who were saying, Peter's my favorite. Well, here's what Peter would have said and did say about 10 years after Paul. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, so he's saying stop dividing with each other. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter picks up on this imagery that Paul leaves with us and says, yeah, Paul's right. We are stones. We are living stones being built up together with Christ as a chief cornerstone. And then over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19... Paul would later uh, elaborate a little bit further. And he says in Ephesians 2, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're a family, he says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, for God by the Spirit. So Paul and Peter here and there speak frequently about the fact that as a body we are God's temple, a holy temple. And he speaks of it corporately. Paul later in 2 Corinthians will speak of it individually. You individually are a temple. But here he's speaking of us corporately as that temple. And when you think about what this means, let's think about what it means. You can think about the depth of it. That's the foundation. The depth of a building 
is its foundation. That's how far down it goes. And if any building is built outside the scope of the foundation, then it loses that as its depth. And so it may find itself to the side. It may find itself off of the foundation. And those buildings will tumble and fail. And so the first thing we think about is the fact that we are built in the foundation of Christ. That is our depth. That's where our promise comes from. That's who our hope is in. And so we again think about all the great truths that come from knowing that Christ is the depth of our salvation. We know the work that he did, the life that he brings to us. That life that he brings to us becomes our foundation, becomes our depth. And then you can think about the height of a building. That's what it's being built for. What are we building here? Are we building a high-rise apartment building complex of some kind? If that's what we're doing, we're missing out. And a lot of people build their lives in many other ways that don't count. What we're building here is a temple. And when you think about what we're building, that we are the temple of God, a place that's to be holy. You think about the, uh, the temple itself that had two words. Naos was the inner sanctuary. Hieron was the outer precincts. What Paul uses here in this verse is the, the interior word naos. We are the interior of the temple where God himself dwells. And consequently, where sin and evil and defilement should not dwell. And so we are purified in Christ, part of this temple. But we ourselves find ourselves in such a way that we're, we're, we're not to defile ourselves. Think of it that way. And that's why he later speaks about you individually. But corporately, we should think about the foundation we're building on and what we're building for. We are building this great temple of God. And then you can think of its breadth. <clears throat> a building reaches outward and around as it's building up. And that's a picture of the fact that we're all interconnected. Every stone in a building, in the temple, has to fit with the others. Every stone has its place, has its role. And whatever we are, in that temple, that's what we are, and we have to fit together with it. And so the whole message that Paul brings to us here is to think about what we're doing, what we're building, and how we're doing that, and that we all fit together. And when you think of it that way, the vine and the branches, when you think of the family, that there's roles, there's a father and mother, and there's the children, there's those who are in leadership, there's those who are learning, there's those who are growing, all of us have this responsibility to find our place in it. And then he speaks of the multiplicity of spiritual gifts we have. That every body has a part. There's a head, there's an eye, there's a nose, there's hands, there's feet. Every body has parts. And if you have gifts and abilities and experiences that you're not now using to share with the body, not only do you suffer, but the body itself suffers. Others here who may have needed you in their life, are now missing that. Why? Well, because we're distracted by other things. We're thinking about ourselves. We're looking out for ourselves and our needs. What Paul is talking about here is thinking as a body. Now, in America today, there's this general philosophy of radical individualism that says you need to become whatever it is that you're supposed to be on your own. In other words, you've been raised in a family when kids go to college, you're told this. You've been raised in a family where you've inherited the religion of your parents. Set that aside. Cast that off. And instead, find yourself in yourself. 
And so there is this push to encourage people to build their own lives in their own way. And when you do that, when you stand alone, you're not part of a larger structure. You think you're your own structure, your own building. You determine your own values in life. You determine your own measure of success and meaning in life. When you do that, you find yourself lonely. And in America, there's a lot of people who are lonely, a lot of people who are missing out on the great joy of being part of something greater than themselves. And Paul is saying that you today have an opportunity to become part of something bigger than yourself. If you stand building on your own meager, sandy beach, a, found, a, a building with no foundation, with no substance to it, you will die lonely and have nothing to show for it. But if you instead join together with a body, join together with the body of Christ and build on Christ as a foundation and work one with another and grow that way, you'll find yourself no longer lonely, but you'll find yourself in a place where there's meaning and value and some measure of accomplishment in life. Because we're not supposed to do it on our own. And we all know that already. We know that we can't build our own lives on our own. We need to instead build them with a cause that's bigger than us. I mean, what really matters? Ask yourself the question, what would you be willing to die for? What would you be willing to go to prison for? What are you willing to suffer for? And if you say nothing, then that means there's nothing in your life bigger than you. If you're not willing, you see, there's no sense of self-actualization or meaning that comes from suffering if you're only suffering for your own sake. There's only some sense of meaning that comes when you suffer or endure hardship as Paul did in his life if you endure that hardship for something bigger than you. And Paul's message is this, that we are part of something bigger than us. That's why we're here this Sunday. That's why we gather together to worship together, to sit before the Lord's table, to know that when we gather together as God's temple, we are in a place where God's presence dwells and that God's presence comes through us and empowers us, strengthens us, encourages us as we encourage one another. That's what Paul's encouraging us to do here. That's what he's calling us to build. And so he says, again, there's a spirit that builds that. Now he speaks of those who destroy God's temple. There are those who might destroy it, those who might offer bad theology. You think about a beautiful house being built, a beautiful building, but then you get an electrician that's cutting corners, that doesn't know how to wire properly, and you put that whole structure at risk. And there's a lot of people without discernment who are acting as though they're becoming part of a building that's got something dangerous going on in it. And bad theology, bad teaching, it can cause that. And so we have to watch out for those who are either not building on the foundation, which is Christ, but building on some other false foundation, or building with inferior materials. Paul is saying, build wisely, because for those that destroy the temple, they themselves will be destroyed. Again, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And so we all think this morning about what it means to be that temple. Now, let's just quickly take the last few verses. What can I do to build wisely? And Paul's talking about here, again, he's now summarizing what's gone on before, but building wisely. He says in verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, 
Let him become a fool that he may become wise. And this revisits the same thing he said in chapter 1. There's a wisdom of the world that people thinks, you know, we can do it this way. So we can learn the world's marketing techniques and we can build large congregations by following certain marketing techniques. But there's no substance to it. And so he says, don't be sucked in by the wisdom of this world. He continues on, verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, and he quotes from Job 5 here, he catches the wise in their craftiness. These words of Eliphaz come and say that God will see those who think they're so smart, who think they're so crafty. You think you're getting away with something. You think you're so brilliant. And then you find out God knows what you're doing. God knows how you're thinking. You're caught in your craftiness. And then he continues on. And again, from Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. There's a futility in thinking that you know it all. What Paul is calling us to do is to build our lives on the scriptures and in his word and on Christ himself. Now he continues on with these last verses. And here Paul is sort of getting wound up a little bit. So listen to what he writes. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And he goes back to chapter 1. Don't boast that you're a follower of Paul or that you're a follower of Apollos or Peter. Don't act like you're simply a cog in their ministry, in their world. But what does he say here? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, who is Peter. He's saying that those great teachers were given for you, to strengthen you. So learn from them. So if you like Paul, who was the founder in many ways of, of so many churches throughout Asia Minor and into Greece and eventually to Rome the one who laid the foundation in Christ. If you like what Paul did, you can learn from Paul. If you, however, like who Apollos is, who was, as we know from Acts 18, a very brilliant scholar, educated in Alexandria, skillful in the Greek. In fact, some think perhaps he wrote the book of Hebrews as its author. And if you know Hebrews, you know how skillfully that was written. That's a picture of Apollos. Maybe you think of a great theologian that really influences you. Or Peter, the one who walked with Christ, who spent his days with Christ. You're more of a Peter guy. You like to hear from somebody who was there in the ministry. And you could hear Peter's stories by the fireside with Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. So many things not written. Maybe that's the guy you like. He says they're all given for you. So learn from Paul, Apollos, and Peter. Learn from Swindoller, MacArthur, and Spruill, and Piper, and others. Learn from them what you can. Because we're all part of the same thing. The unity is what matters. And so stay focused on what really matters. And so he continues on, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life or death, this world is yours, he says. All that is in it will one day be yours in Christ when it's rebuilt in the new age. Or of life or death, the life that you're living, the life that you have, both its, its, its joys and its trials, its triumphs and successes and its failures, its pain, all of that, is part of what is making you who you are. Make that a part of who you are. And then in death, death is not something we fear, Paul says, because that is what transitions us to that moment when we join with Christ himself. As I said, the, the, the best day in a believer's life is their last day on earth because that's the day they meet their Savior for the first time face to face. That's when they know God as he is. And so he says in life or in death, in the presence or the future, 
our present life, even with its struggles, those are ours, he says, and, and our future, all are yours. And by that he means that's all of what is making you. Those aren't things you serve. You don't serve Paul or Apollos or Peter, this world or life or death. Those are what make you. Those serve you. And why? Because he says, again at the end, for you are Christ. When you are in Christ, you are part of his, and Christ is God's. That's the big family that Paul's talking about building. That's the structure. Those are the living stones. Those are how Paul wants us to think. That's why we're here. We're here because we are being knit together. The fabric of my life is being knit into the fabric of your life as we join together in so many ways to find what it means to be part of a community, to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and know that what we're doing has lasting results. So we love one another, we minister to each other, we care for one another, because that's what's building gold and silver. And we don't look out for our own selves, seeking our own needs. That's what is wood, hay, and straw, useless things. So let's think today about why we gather together each week, why we love one another, why we spend time with each other. It's to build up what is God's great temple. Will you stand with me as we pray? And our Father, we thank you for this word that you have for us from Paul, reminding us that we are part of his great temple, his great building. We know that we are part of a structure bigger than ourselves, a purpose greater than ourselves, with a future greater than we can imagine. We think of the great promises of a new world, a new heavens and a new earth where we are forever joined together in the glorious presence of our God and Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us keep focused on that each day of our life. For it's in